Well, we have a real treat this morning. Uh, I have listened to uh, Pastor Shane Willard uh, and on his podcast for several years now. Uh, I find him one of the most brilliant Bible teachers I've ever come across. He's a man with uh, degrees in uh, clinical psychology and theology. He is mentored by uh, a pastor with rabbinical training, and he teaches the context of the scriptures from a Jewish perspective. I cannot tell you how excited I am to have Pastor Shane with us this morning. Would you please put your hands together and welcome Shane Willard as he comes. Well, good morning, everybody. So good to be here with you. Thank you so much for the opportunity to spend the weekend with you together. If you're the type that likes to follow along in an actual Bible, um, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 4 and then Mark chapter 2. It's okay if not, we've made slides because that's just good communication, all right? Um, as, as you heard, um, um, I've had the incredible privilege of being mentored by a pastor with his rabbi training, and so all my stuff comes from that bent. I do have a master's degree in clinical psychology as well, so be careful what you say to me because I can see through all that stuff, right? Um, on your way out um, today, you're going to see a gigantic table. Um, it's, it's filled with our resources. If you can't find um, my table, seek medical help, okay? It's taken up half the foyer out there. And if you look at that and you go, you know what? Why would you carry that stuff around with you? The reason is, is here we go, we make a lot of money from it, okay? Now, the, the reason we do that is because we live with a conviction that we're not simply called to go to heaven when, when we die, although we embrace that, that we're called to say yes to the infinite possibilities that Jesus has for our life here now today to participate in bringing heaven to every place we see hell here. Now, for us, that is, uh, we, we, we make that a matter of justice projects, okay? So 100% of what we make from the table, um, we give to justice projects around the world. Specifically, we have three orphanages in China that look after mentally handicapped kids, two in Hinyang, one in Changsha. Um, and we have a rescue home in Cape Town that gets girls out of sex trafficking. Um, but we don't just do that. We get them off drugs, that's number one. We get them off drugs, and then we get them high school educated, um, and then we get them job trained so that we can break the cycle of poverty in the Cape Town Flats. It does us no good to play moral high ground and say you shouldn't be a prostitute. If that's the only way someone can feed their family, they will be forced back into that. And so what we do is we try to make options for them. And so um, it's actually going so well there, we've been officially recognized by the Department of Justice in Cape Town as a viable diversion option to Polesmore Prison. So they use us as rehabilitation forces um, because we have psychologists on staff and, and all of that. So I say all that to say, the way I run my business, because I've never been here before, you would have no way of knowing this, the way I run this is that 100% of, of how I pay for plane tickets and, um, and live and, and cost comes from honorariums and love offerings. 100% of what we make in profit from the table, we use to support those things, okay? Now, let me remove all manipulation, okay? Because I, I hate manipulation. If I was going to manipulate you, I'd show you sad pictures and say, give if you have a heart. Let me, so I'm going to remove, I'm not going to do that. So, I, so I'm going to remove all manipulation. I've already given our commitment before I got here, okay? So on July, I'm not going to tell Chinese orphans, wait to see if the people in Auckland buy if you eat, okay? On July 1st, we give them what we're going to give them, right? On July 30th, if we, if we did more than that, then we make it up. If we do less than that, then I eat it, okay? It's, it's so, so they're going to eat whether you buy something or not. But, but, here's all I'm saying, is before you go to lunch today, if you'll let me put something in your hands that'll change the way you look at God, and you put something in our hands that helps us feed, clothe, shelter, educate mentally handicapped kids, or get girls out of sex trafficking, what the Chinese government trusts us with, 
has everything to do with how much is there for them to trust us with the next group of kids from the welfare center, okay? So, so that's, that's, what, that's what is at stake there. Now, everything's available in four formats, CD, DVD, USB, and direct download, okay? If you don't know what a USB is, just buy the CD, okay? Or you can find a nine-year-old. They'll show you what to do with a USB, and, and that'd be great, all right? Or the technology is there now, and we have it out there. All I need is an email, and I can make it appear on your phone in about 20 seconds. Pretty awesome. So come on out there and know um, you're making a difference. Myself and Kristen um, will be out there to, 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 to help you. All right, so I want to talk to you this morning about Jesus. Um, I figure that's a great topic, right? Because, because it's, it's, communication 101 is find common ground. Well, you don't know me. So Jesus is what brings us together, as Paul said, is one new shared humanity. And so I want to talk to you about Jesus. But in one message, you can only talk about one part of Jesus. Is Jesus the Son of God? Yes. Is he the Son of Man? Yes. Is he prophet? Yes. Priest? Yes. King? Yes. Savior? Yes. Lion? Yes. Lamb? Yes. Jesus is all of these things. And so, so when you talk about Jesus and you can only pick one aspect, it's very important that we make a point before we do this that we're only talking about one aspect of Jesus, not at the expense of other aspects, that we embrace all of these things about Jesus. But this morning, I have one, 40 minute segment of time to talk about one aspect of Jesus and I can't wait to talk about this aspect of Jesus because it changed my life. I want to talk to you this morning about Jesus, the first century rabbi who had disciples and called them to make other disciples. I want to talk to you about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. I want to talk to you about what it means in the first century to be called a disciple of a rabbi. How do I know Jesus was a rabbi? Because they called him rabbi. <laughs> it was a very, very special title that only three people in the whole Bible were called. Gamaliel, Paul, Jesus. That is it. You never hear anybody, Rabbi James? Nope. Rabbi Peter? Nah. Nope. Rabbi John? Nope. Rabbi Jesus? Yes. Rabbi Paul? Yes. Rabbi Gamaliel. It was so special. So let me show you this. This is Matthew chapter 4. If you could bring that first slide up. This is the account of Jesus calling his first four disciples. Uh, this is what it says. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, called Peter and his brother Andrew. And they're casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. If you're the note-taking type, that's very important that you note that. It's going to come back in a second. That these guys were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I'll send you out to fish for people. And at once they left their nets and followed him odd response, right? Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John. And they're in a boat with their father, Zebedee, preparing their nets. So obviously, they're fishermen as well. And Jesus called them, and immediately, they left the boat and their father and followed him. What an odd response. Four grown men leaving everything they know to follow a guy who simply stood on the shore and said, follow me. That makes no sense. What would possess four grown men to leave everything they know to follow a hippie-looking guy standing there, and his sales pitch is literally this compelling. Follow me. Four grown people go, okay. That makes no sense. Four out of four leave their wives, their children, their jobs, their families, their communities, and their boats to follow a guy. Now that, that is compelling in and of itself and begs all kinds of questions like 
what is going on here? Look, it's one thing to leave your wife. You might not like her very much, and there's other women everywhere, but it's a whole other thing to leave your boat. When a man leaves a boat, that guy is now serious. What would compel these people to do that? And then it's not like he found four guys in a midlife crisis. If, if you keep reading, he goes 12 for 12 on this. Here's the fifth disciple. Check this guy out. This is, this is a guy named Matthew. Next slide. Uh, once again, a Levi went out beside the lakes. Evidently, he's by the same lake that he found the fishermen in. And a large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. And as he walked along, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at a tax collector's booth. Follow me. It's a weird word again. And Jesus told him. And Levi got up and followed him. So evidently, there's a large crowd, but out of the whole crowd, he picks this one guy who's sitting at a tax collector's booth, and he says, follow me, and the guy gets up and quits his job and leaves with Jesus. Like, look, let's be honest. If you're married, how does that conversation go? Hey, honey, how was your day? It's good. Quit my job. You did what? Yeah, hippie-looking guy came by, said, follow him. I thought it was a good idea. Where are you going? He didn't say. When are you coming back? He didn't say that either. He just said, follow him. So I did. How does that go? But he goes four for four, five for five, 12 for 12. What is going on here? And what about the other people in the crowd? Does Jesus not want them following him? What's going on there? How do we know what's happening? When I learned this, it changed my whole life. It's probably the most eventful thing I've ever learned in my life. It's something that happened that changed the way I saw everything about Jesus after this. And I'd like to share it with you today. See, in the first century, every Hebrew boy wanted to be a rabbi. It was the highest honor to be entrusted with Torah, to be entrusted with scripture. That to be a rabbi was so special, but only the best of 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 the best made it. You're welcome, translator, whoever's doing that. Let's mess with the translator for a second. The best of 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 the best. Right? It's sort of like this. In New Zealand, how many boys want to play rugby? All of them. How many of them are ever actually going to play for the All Blacks? None of them. Very, very few. At some point, almost every boy is told, you don't have what it takes to play at the next level. You're going to have to go earn a living some other way. But the best of 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 the best end up making it all the way to the All Blacks. That's why every 45-year-old man in New Zealand has a back-in-the-day story, right? It's like, oh, I'd have made it if it wasn't for my knee. No, you probably just weren't that good, right? We know you weren't that good, and you know you weren't that good. That's how it was to be a rabbi. And, and so there was this process by which little boys from very little um, became rabbis. And if at any point they failed, they got cut. Let me tell you quickly the process. First, you had to memorize Leviticus by the age of six. How many of us are cut already? We're done, right? You got to memorize Leviticus by age six. If you memorize Leviticus by age six, you graduate to the first school. Let, let me show you the names of the schools. Next slide. The first, name of the first school was called the Bet Safar. Now, with some go all blacks gusto, I want to teach you some words this morning. So let's try that together with gusto. It sounds like this. Bet Safar. Ready? Go. Bet Safar. All right? Let's try that again. Ready? With a little bit more gusto. Go. Bet Safar. Bet Safar literally is the school of the book. It's think of it as elementary school. 
In an elementary school, you had to memorize the entire Torah. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Genesis, Exodus, and that lasted from 6 to 12. At 12 years old, you were given a Torah exam. To qualify to take the exam, you had to prove you had memorized the entire book. This is how it would go. They would read a random portion of Torah. When they stopped, you had to continue. That's what you had to do to even qualify to take the exam. Which leads to this question. If to even take the exam, you had to memorize the entire book, what could they possibly be testing you on? The Torah exam at 12 years old was on, not on your mastery of content. You had to master the content to take the exam. The Torah exam at 12 years old was on your ability to ask questions about the scripture in order to keep a conversation about God going. Great rabbis were not known for their ability to answer questions. Great rabbis were known for their ability to ask the correct questions to keep a conversation about God going. Think about your Bible. When Jesus was 12 years old, he was wowing the teachers of the law with his questions with his questions not with his answers with his questions now if you wowed the teachers of the law with your questions at 12 you graduated to the next school the next school was called the bet talmud with the same amount of all blacks gusto let's try that everybody go bet talmud now bet talmud literally translates the school of disciple talmud is a disciple talmudim are disciples so it was discipleship school. Now, discipleship school lasted from 12 to 30. It was 18 years long and five stages. For the sake of time and relevance, we'll call the stages stage one, two, three, four, five. And if you graduated from stage one, you got to go to stage... Yes, you're with me. So that's so good. And if you get from stage two to stage three, three to four, four to five, it took you 18 years to do this. Have you ever wondered why Jesus disappears at 12 years old and nothing's heard of him again until he's 30? And at 30, he comes out of the desert and everybody's going, Rabbi, 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 where, where, what was he doing? Is the bet Talmud. Jesus' credibility was with God and with man. You don't draw big crowds coming out of the desert claiming to be God. <laughs> that, that makes them think you're a lunatic. Uh, unless, un, unless you have some credibility for someone to listen to what you're saying. And so, one, two, three, and if at any point you failed, you were told, I'm sorry, you're disqualified from being a rabbi, you're gonna go have to earn a living at your family trade. But the best of 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 the best kept going. They all had family trades. Paul's family trade was tent making. Jesus' family trade was carpentry. They all had family trades to fall back on in case they got disqualified. Now, stage five. We are now 30 years old and we all have graduated. If you make it to stage five, you are a rabbi. There's only one thing left to determine. What sort of rabbi will you be? There were two types of rabbis. First type was a rabbi without authority. Second type of rabbi was a rabbi with authority. Now, almost no difference between the two except this. A rabbi without authority, 99.9% .9 of all rabbis, a rabbi without authority had to teach the scripture the same way his rabbi taught him. 
So his rabbi for 18 years has trained him in how to teach scripture, how to interpret scripture, and you had to teach it the same way. So every rabbi in Israel could trace their roots back to some rabbi with authority, okay? A rabbi with authority could make up his own way of interpreting scripture. Think of it as starting your own movement or something. So you could make up your own way. Now, a rabbi's way of interpreting scripture was called his yoke. A rabbi's yoke was a summary statement of what he allowed, what he didn't allow, how he interpreted certain rules, what constitutes work on Sabbath, how, is it okay to divorce, is it okay not to divorce, what are you, what, what are the rules around this? This was a rabbi's yoke. It was his way of interpreting scripture. And the summary statement of what he allowed and didn't allow was called binding and loosing. You see all of this throughout the scripture as well. Now, the rabbis without authority, 99.9% .9 of all rabbis were rabbis without authority. But the best of 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 the best became rabbis with authority about once every two or three generations. Uh, let me show you the most important word I'll show you today. Next slide. The word is samika. Now, samika is the word that means rabbinical authority. So you were either a rabbi without samika or you are a rabbi with Samika. Now, let's practice saying that word with a lot of gusto because I promise you it's the most important word I'm going to teach you today. Let's go. Ready? Let's, go. let's try it like this. Go. Samika. All right. Let's try I like that deep sort of thing. Ready? Let's try that again. Go. Samika. Now, if you want to sound Jewish, everybody want to sound Jewish? Here's what we're going to do. At the end of the word, we're going to do this. All right, all right, all right. So, so, so let, let's, let's try that again. Ready, everybody go. Samika. Okay, let's, let's do the together. Okay, let's practice. Ready? All right, see, that's it's still rhythm. All right, let's try that again. Ready? There you go. Ready? Let's try that again. Right? So there were rabbis without authority, but then every now and then there become a rabbi so special that he was a rabbi with Samika. Yes. Now, here's how they determined who had Samika and who didn't. At your graduation, they baptized you. You got baptized in that culture anytime you changed social status, right? Think about your Bible. When Jesus was 30 years old, he went out to the desert to be baptized. Now, at your baptism, you had to have two verbal witnesses to your authority to be given authority. Think about it. When Jesus was 30 years old, he went out to the desert to be baptized. And John says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the whole world, whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. Witness one. John baptizes Jesus. Jesus comes up out of the water as a normal, regular rabbi until a second voice speaks. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And there was thunder and lightning and birds and rainbows. It was almost like the father was saying, if no one is going to speak up, I will. And Jesus walks up out of the water, not just as a rabbi, but as a rabbi with Samika. Right? Which means he can now make up his own yoke. And Jesus spent the rest of his life wrecking everybody else's yoke. Think about your scriptures. Take my yoke upon you and learn of 
me, for my yoke is easy, and my, the key to that phrase is my. For him to say my yoke, he had to have Samika. Think about it, think about it. You do not teach as the other rabbis teach, but you teach as one with authority. Samika, like, right, like it means, in other words, you're, it doesn't mean he's yelling. It means he's saying something new. You do not teach as the other rabbis teach, but you teach as one who's making up your own yoke. This was a rabbi with authority. Now, first thing the rabbi would do is he had to go get disciples. Why? Because a rabbi who's not teaching other people scripture is like a monk. He's just sitting around thinking about stuff. So what you would do as the new 30-year-old rabbi is you would go get disciples. Think about it. Let's, see, let's make sure you're following me here. If you're the new rabbi, where do you go get new disciples from? The Bet Talmud. You would go and find pre-vetted 12-year-old boys. Pre-vetted. They already memorized the scripture. They've already wowed the teachers of the law with their questions. Now they just need a rabbi to take them under their tutelage. So the new rabbis would show up at the Bet Talmud and they would look. And they would choose boys to be in their school. And they would ordain them into their rabbi school with two words. Follow me, follow me, follow me, follow me. Every Hebrew, rabbi, every Hebrew boy wanted to hear the words of a rabbi say, follow me. But most of them only ever heard, you don't have what it takes. And the only question the new rabbi had to ask is, do I believe you could do greater things than me? Do I believe you could do greater things than me? And if the new rabbi believed they could do greater things than him, he would ordain them with two words, follow me, follow me, follow me follow me. But this new rabbi with Samika, he doesn't go to the Bet Talmud to find his disciples, does he? No. Where does he go? He goes to the lake. And who does he find? Fishermen, which means what? They had been disqualified. And he stands on the banks of the lake and says, hey, follow me. And they're jumping out of boats for the opportunity to follow this guy. Why? Because they had longed their whole life to be given that kind of opportunity. And now it's not just any rabbi. It's the new rabbi with authority standing on the banks of the lake saying, you guys have what it takes. Follow me. That is the yoke of our rabbi. The yoke of our rabbi qualifies disqualified people. That is the yoke of our rabbi. Oh, first thing a rabbi would do once he had his disciples is he'd teach them how to walk. What they wanted to do was they wanted to imitate their rabbi. One historian said it this way, you could always tell which disciples belonged to which rabbi by the way they walked. Which made me wonder if there wasn't a rabbi in the first century like with a limp, you know. But they, 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 they wanted to walk exactly like their rabbi. Like, like, in their scripture, there's somewhere that's like, if, how will the world know you're my disciple unless you walk like I? Walk unless you live like I live. They wanted to imitate the life of their rabbi. And so when they were walking behind their rabbi, you could always tell who the greatest student of the day was because the greatest student of the day got to be the line leader, right? Just like today. And you could always tell who the line leader was because he was the one walking the closest behind the rabbi and the rabbi's shoes were throwing up dirt, and you could always tell who the line leader was because he was the one covered in dust 
from his rabbi's shoes. And so, you, but this was, this was not dust you wanted to wash off. This was dust you wanted to show off. It meant, hey, I'm the, so, so you'd go back to synagogue and you'd be like, hey, check out my dust, right? Right? Because it was an honor to be covered in the dust of your rabbi. Think about your Bible. Remember Jesus said, if you ever go to a place and they don't accept you, what do you do? Do you destroy them? No, you shake the dust off your feet. Like, that's a blessing. You realize, like, like that's, in other words, Jesus is like, if they don't accept you, give, still give them the best thing you can give them. Give them whatever you can do. And here's the truth of it. You'll either be covered in the dust of your rabbi or you'll be covered in the dust of your own issues. You'll be covered in the dust of your mom, your dad, the dust of your denomination, or my personal favorite, the dust of this, just what I was always taught. <laughs> As if that's going to stand the test of time. No, no, you don't want those dusts. You want to be covered in the dust of your rabbi. Because when you're covered in the dust of your rabbi, you will cover other people in the dust of your rabbi. You want to walk so close behind your rabbi that you're covered in his dust. Which leads me to this question. Unless you've been given special samika, that one actually sounded disgusting. <laughs> like, like it was like, <laughs> did you hear that? It was funny. Right? Unless you've been given special authority, and you haven't, then you're not allowed to make up your own yoke. You have to teach the yoke of your rabbi. You have to live the yoke of your rabbi. If you're a disciple of Jesus Christ, then we have to live by the yoke of our rabbi, which makes me wonder, how are we doing? Does the world know? If, if we weren't allowed to tell the world we're followers of Jesus, would they know it just by our, by our life? By our action? Oh, there's this one time, remember? Jesus goes and finds his first four disciples. What was their job? This, I told you this was coming back. What was their job? Fisherman, fifth disciple. What was his job? Tax collector. Hang on, where did he find him? At the lake. Hold on, if you're the tax collector at the lake, who have you been taxing? Fishermen. In other words, we're going to find out right now if you four have what it takes to follow me. Can you forgive the guy that's been robbing from you for years and let's go change the world together? That is the yoke of our rabbi. <laughs> I love the yoke of our rabbi. Oh, you know what? There's this one time. There was this lady. And she was caught in the act of adultery. Like, in the act. In the act. Now, that's, that's embarrassing. I mean, that's not a great spectator sport, even if it's appropriate. But she gets caught in the act of adultery. Now, you guys, I'm assuming you know a bit about Scripture. What does Scripture clearly say you must do to someone caught in the act of adultery? Stone them. So, they bring her to Jesus. And they say, Jesus, the Torah says stone her. What does your yoke say? Now, Jesus is in a conundrum, isn't he? Is he supposed to keep the law? Yes. Does he want to stone her? No. So what does Jesus do? The genius of Jesus Christ is unbelievable. Here's what he does. He goes, you're right. The Torah says stoner. So I say stoner. There, I've kept the law. But wait, I have Samika. 
which means I can make up my own yoke. The Torah says stoner, so I say stoner. But I also say you can't throw stones unless you're perfect. So everybody gets tired of holding their stones, and they put them down. It says that Jesus kneels down and writes something in the dirt. What does he write? Na, 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 na. It says they all leave. It says after they all leave, he looks at her. And it says, woman, just answer the question, master question. Where are your accusers? Not what did you do, not tell me about it. Where are your accusers? She looks around and says, they're not here. He says, good. <laughs> then neither do I condemn you. Why? Because the Torah said you had to stone someone caught in the act of adultery. But the Torah also says you have to have two witnesses to condemn somebody. Jesus couldn't make her sin go away, so he simply made the witnesses go away, which automatically declares a mistrial. That is the yoke of our rabbi. Which is why there's therefore now no condemnation to those who are in... It's not that you don't sin. It's just there'll never be enough witnesses to condemn you by the law of God. That is the yoke of our rabbi. Which leads me to this question. The yoke of our rabbi looked at someone caught in the act of adultery and said, I don't condemn you. Let me throw a wrench in that. She wasn't repenting. They caught her on her back. Could your yoke say that? Could your yoke look at someone caught in the act of adultery and say, no condemnation here. No condemnation. My yoke couldn't. I grew up in an old school Pentecostal holiness denomination. And the yoke of those folks was if someone commits adultery, it was okay to announce it from the stage. That is not the yoke of our rabbi. That's the yoke of some jacked up white dude from 1880 with severe daddy issues. That is not the yoke, how could the world, and then they had the audacity to say, oh, people unfortunately reject Jesus. No, they didn't. They rejected the image of Jesus you just presented. The yoke of our rabbi doesn't do that. The yoke of our rabbi could look at someone caught in the act and go, I don't condemn you. What's the next line? Now go and sin no more. We reverse it and call it Jesus. We go, Go and sin no more so God won't condemn you. No, it's the kindness of God that leads people to repentance, not some sort of warning like that. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. It's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. That is the yoke of our rabbi. You know, the yoke of our rabbi existed in the Old Testament too. It's almost like he's always been in charge. Like in Hebrews 11, it gives these like heroes, you know, by faith, Abraham, by faith, right? right? It gives all these heroes, right, right? If you go read their stories, they all did crazy stuff, right? Like, by faith, Abraham. He gave his wife to Pharaoh's harem, and Genesis says that he profited greatly from Egyptian affluence while his wife was suffering in Pharaoh's harem. If CNN and the internet would have been around back then, what would we be saying about Abraham? Well, let me be blunt. If Abraham was available to preach here next Sunday... Would you let him? Or would you start a blog about why he should be disqualified because of what he did? 
Isaac did something similar. Moses, Moses was a premeditated murderer. I looked this way and that and seeing no one, I killed the man and hit him in the sand. Problem was the next day the sand shifted. You got this leg sticking up out of the sand. God said, you'll do. Oh, I, I, you'll do. You'll do. By faith, Samson. Samson was sleeping with prostitutes on his wedding night because he got depressed because his best man stole his wife. By faith, David. David had what? 700 women or something? 700 women. 700. Why would you expose yourself to such stress? Pain. And he still went and committed adultery, murdered 17 people in one day to cover up that adultery for the woman he couldn't have. Do you know there are denominations of Jesus Christ in the world today that according to their written bylaws would never let David preach in their pulpits because of what he did. Yet, they'll read a book David wrote call it the word of God and fail to see the irony in that. And we wonder why G people don't accept Jesus. It's not, they're not rejecting Jesus. They're rejecting the image of Jesus his followers are presenting by thinking they have Samika when they don't. By faith Solomon, Solomon had a thousand women. A thousand women. God said, I'll have you write the book on wisdom. Imagine that conversation. Excuse me, sir. Are you the guy that successfully navigated the affections of a thousand women? Yes, I am. You've got to be the smartest guy on earth. <laughs> Would we let Solomon preach next week? A guy with a thousand women? Folks were so privileged they'd have Solomon here today. He's got a thousand women. But listen, we're going to let that go. Because he's got something wise to say from the Spirit of God. Or David? Abraham? The yoke of our rabbi was always qualifying disqualified people. And aren't you glad? He qualified me. He qualified you. Somebody would disqualify all of us. I love it. I could talk to you about the yoke of our rabbi all day. But if I talk so long that you get hungry, you'll turn on me like rabid dogs. So I don't want to do that. Just a couple more I... Oh, man, there's this one time. Jesus having sort of a bad day, you know. Ends up on a cross. That is the end of a bad day. And even on a cross, he still has the compassion to think about the guy next to him and forgive the person at his feet. That is the yoke of our rabbi. No altar call, no temple visit, no sacrifice, no sinner's prayer. The guy simply asked to be remembered. That is the yoke of our rabbi. Two more stories, one from the Bible, one from my personal life. I got the opportunity to go to a place called Caesarea Philippi. Um, it's, in, it's in Matthew chapter 9-ish, I think. It says, it's a quick line. It says, and Jesus took his disciples to Caesarea Philippi. And then it just goes on. Okay, a couple things. First of all, Caesarea Philippi is an hour and 15 minute drive on a paved road in a motor car today from Galilee, okay? You didn't just accidentally go there, right? Secondly, it was the place no Christian would go. 
It was debaucherous. It was the headquarters of the worship of the goat god Pan. Actually, today, it's no longer called Caesarea Philippi. It's called Panaya, the city of Pan. Pan was a half-goat, half-man god, and his temple was in the center of Caesarea Philippi, and Jesus takes a missions trip with his youth group there, okay? This was a massive—I I actually have a picture of this. Let me show it to you if you bring that up, all right? So this is a picture of the center of Caesarea Philippi. The reason that picture is of such high quality is that I took it myself. Um, every, every photographer in the world is trying to get another man's arm in the bottom left of his photograph. But don't worry about it, right? This is a 200 and, I don't know, 50-foot straight-up uh, rock face. Um, when you guys go to Israel, if certain tourists go here, certain tourists don't. It is a bit out of the way, but it is worth going to. As you can see over to the right, um, that is the ruins of the Temple of Pan. Uh, the big flat platform there was called the Court. There's a big uh, billboard explaining this. Um, it's called the Court of Pan and the Nymphs. So think Nympho, okay? Um, and that's where they would worship Pan. Now, over to the right is a huge cave. You can see that huge cave, and that was called the Entrance and Exit to Hell, all right? And here's what they taught. They taught that if you didn't worship Pan properly, um, he would open up the exit and entrance to hell and swallow you into it. So the people of Caesarea Philippi were under constant fear of being swallowed into hell um, because they weren't worshipped Pan properly. Here's the problem. Pan was a goat who received worship, and I don't want to be too graphic, but I, I do want you to understand the, the, the weight of this. He received worship through people being intimate with goats. Okay? And so what they would do is right over there on that, on that court of Pan and the nymphs were people required to worship Pan 24-7 to keep him. It wasn't because they had an affinity to goats. It's because they were scared of being swallowed into hell. So any thought you're having that the world's getting worse, uh, no, think again. Um, the worst debauchery going on in Auckland tonight uh, is not that. Okay, And so Jesus takes his youth group there. I would have been fired, right? Jesus takes his youth group there. And they're standing there in the middle of the most debaucherous situation you can possibly imagine. He has to focus them. Like, could you imagine 12 guys? Like, I've never seen this before. It would have been an unbelievable situation. And remember what Jesus says? He says, Peter, hey! Peter, right here, bro. Right here. Focus. Who do you say that I am? Peter shakes it off. He says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, that's right. And upon this rock, we'll build a church. And not even the gates of hell will prevail against it. Jesus went into the epicenter of the worst debauchery you can imagine, and he doesn't condemn them for what they're doing. He attacks the very thing that was the reason for why they were doing what they were doing. He stands over the gates of hell, and he says, you all are acting like that because you're scared of this? And Jesus stands right over the gates of hell and says, bring it on. That is the yoke of our rabbi. Um, I used, to, I used to kickbox. I got very good at it. I placed high enough in the U.S. Open to be invited to the NASCA World Championships. Um, uh, this was years ago. I have no intention of fighting today. Uh, fighting today is different. They take you to the ground and pull your arm off. Um, 
back then you had to, they made us stand up and fight. And if we clinched, a ref separated us. A bit easier to fight that way. And uh, at least in sport. Um, and, and so, but I, I did very well. And, um, and so my mom was this mom. She was one of these moms that was very proud of her son. Like there was a shrine in our house with all my trophies and stuff. And, and so all my friends had come over to look at it. And uh, there was this guy in my neighborhood. His name was Kenneth Brown. And Kenneth, I just, I, I'm six foot two. I am 85 kilos today. Ken, Kenneth Brown was six foot two, 93 kilos in the eighth grade. He, he was one of these freaks of nature who was like shaving in the fourth grade. You know what I'm saying? Like we went to recess, he had to go shave. It was this guy. So this guy shows up and he says, Shane Willard, I think I can whoop you. And I said, I think you're right. He said, no, I'm serious. I want to fight. And I said, I'm serious. I'm not fighting you. He said, why not? I said, because you're twice my size. You don't fight people twice your size, bro. It's a rule. He said, I bought boxing gloves to prove I could, I, I could beat you. I said, wait a minute. You want a boxing match? Like, we're going to wear gloves where you can't grab me? And, and there, a ref will say, yeah, oh, we can do that. You said fight. I didn't know you meant box. Let's go do that, right? So we went out. You can picture this. All the friends, you know, make a ring, fight, fight, you know. Anyway, I got in the ring with Kenneth Brown, and I beat him to death. I mean, I beat him and beat him. I was fast. He was slow. I was skilled. He was not. Uh, I couldn't hurt him. He was twice my size. I was just in and out, in and out, pop, 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 right? Wasn't going to hurt him. It was like a flea hitting him, really. But anyway, he couldn't get to me. Well, he got frustrated, and he decided, I'm going to end this with one punch. And he threw a right cross. It was different than any right cross I've ever seen in my life. Um, let me show it to you in real speed. Here it comes. Ready? Ready? Watch. Here it comes. I actually had time to think. I'll move now. When he finished the punch, he left himself in this position. And I thought, I'm going to end this. And never before nor since have I ever hit a human being that hard. Everything from the ground up. If you're, if you're familiar with martial arts, it's called striking from the ground. Right? Everything. It's not, it was big muscles leading small muscles. Everything moving in tandem. Perfect shot right on the base of his chin. Bam! His head snapped back. His knees buckled in retrospect, I should have kept hitting him. But I thought, no, I just sort of stood over him like, and waited for him to fall. And he didn't. He caught his balance. He looked up at me, and now he was mad. His face turned red. And he said, boy, is that all you got? And it was. I had hit him with everything I had, and he was still coming at me. How many of you know when you hit somebody with your best shot and they're still coming, you lose? I forfeited. You know, the book of Colossians says this, that the yoke of our rabbi was put on public display at the cross. Oh, forgive your enemies. Oh, bless those who despitefully use you. Oh, blessed are the merciful, for they'll obtain mercy. Oh, never intentionally harm anybody. What if they're putting nails in your hands, huh? What if they're putting a crown of thorns? What if they hit you 39 times with a whip? What if, what if they're putting nails in your feet? What if they're mocking you, scourging you, spitting you? Come on, come on, come on, get us, get us, get us, smite us. Come on, 
Come on, come on, come on, fight back, fight back, fight back, break your yoke. If you break your yoke, you'll have no authority for life. Come on, come on, come on, come on, come on, come on, come on. And they beat him 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 and they beat him. And he kept loving and forgiving and loving and forgiving and loving and forgiving and loving and forgiving. And he did it all the way to death. You can't do more to a man than kill him. And he loved and forgave all the way to the grave. That's why any message of Jesus that says, you better do something or he'll destroy you, is not the message of Jesus. I don't care if there's a 25-foot cross over the top of the building. If Jesus was going to destroy people, he would have destroyed them. The yoke of our rabbi is love, forgive, love, forgive, love, forgive. Oh, oh, love, forgive, love, forgive, love, forgive. And they killed him. And they killed him. You know what Peter tells us? Peter tells us that Jesus, when he died, he descended into hell. And Peter actually says what he did. It says that he preached to the dead there. (laughs) How do you preach in hell? I wonder how his altar call went. It's weird. You know, the Bible says that when Jesus rose, graves everywhere emptied. I wonder where they came from. And, And this is what I think happened, if you'll give me a bit of leeway here. I think Jesus descended into hell, looked Satan right in the eye and said, boy, is that all you got? Was that your best shot? You thought, you thought that by killing me, you could destroy my yoke? Oh, no, no, no. Three days from now, I'm going to get out of here. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to cook breakfast on the beach for the very people who abandoned me in my time of need. And we're going to go change this world. And by the way, the whole three days I'm here, I'm holding a revival. So whatever you got planned, you just got stuff. No way. Because the yoke of our rabbi is love saves the day. That is the yoke of our rabbi. Which leads me to this question. Is there anyone you need to cook breakfast on the beach for? Someone you feel did you wrong and it's time to stop holding it against them and just say, hey, we both have our hands around the same cross. Let's live that out. Is there anybody, is there anybody you need to make a phone call for? Is there a text Is there a text, an email, a phone call? Is there someone who used to go here that doesn't feel like they could show back up because they're embarrassed about something they did? And maybe it's just a phone call that says, you know what, please come back. We're not going to bring up your failure. Come on. Come on. It's been been five years. Come on. You kidding me? It's been three years. Come on. It's been a year. Come on. Come on. We live the yoke of our rabbi. Is, Is there any place, I think the most important question we could ask is, as disciples of Jesus, is there any place we've changed his yoke? Have we acted like we have authority when actually we don't? We only have authority within his yoke. I wonder if we need to repent from that. So let's take 15 seconds and be quiet before the Lord. And as followers of Jesus, let's ask the question, Lord Jesus, I'm sorry for changing your yoke. Is there any place I've done that? May I show the world what you're really like? Please forgive me for where I've taken authority where it wasn't mine. And then when we ask this question, is there anybody that I need to reach out to and cook breakfast for the beach on? Maybe you're here today and you've never received Jesus. And you're like, you know what? This Jesus is so compelling and so kind and so compassionate. I'd love to give my heart to him today. And you can make that decision right now. If you need words, you can say this, Lord Jesus, I'm choosing to put my trust in your version of my life story instead of the one I've written on my own. 
And um, I, I believe your life for me would be better. And I'm going to trust that. Be the Lord of my life. Amen. Would you look this way? Now, thanks so much for letting me be a part of your world. Um, I'd like to give you an authentic invitation back specifically to tomorrow night in the east side. I've got a, a new teaching I'll be doing over there. And um, I can't wait to do that. It, it'll change your life. If you, if you make the time to go over there Monday night and it doesn't change your life, um, it, I'll personally, out of my own pocket, I'll refund whatever they charge you to go. Okay, so whatever that is, I'll, I'll pay you back. Um, you, you guys have been a great group of people. Uh, thank you for letting me be a part of your world. I bless you to know that you serve a God that believes in you more than you believe in him. I bless you to know that he's entrusted you with his yoke for this city, this nation, and the world. That you're not following Jesus just to go to heaven. You're following Jesus to live his yoke and bring his yoke to the world. I hope you really enjoyed today. I hope you were blessed. But more than anything, may each and every one of you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. Grace and peace. God bless. Let's stand together. Tearing through the veil of darkness Breaking every chain you set us free Fighting for the furthest that you give your life For all to see Tearing through the veil of darkness Breaking every chain you set us free Fighting for the furthest I you gave your love, your love is relentless. Oh, we worship you, your love is relentless. Your love is relentless. Your love is relentless. Your love is relentless. Wow. Wow. Is anyone else kind of just feeling like, wow? Okay, well, I'm going to be at East at 5 o'clock tonight. I'm going to be at East tonight, tomorrow night at 7 o'clock, and I'd highly recommend that you tag along. And um, I really want to say, don't forget about life groups, and if you want prayer, come up here. But what I really have to say is, don't leave this place without settling the issue of whose yoke you are taking upon you. I don't know about you, but that kind of just redefined Christianity to me. It certainly redefined what it means for me to follow Jesus. Hopefully it does for you. Mighty God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for Shane and the gift on his life. Father, we just pray, Lord, that we will leave this place with a different commitment to follow you, Jesus, to take your yoke upon us and to learn from you. We ask that in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Go check out his stuff. Get some of his teaching in here. It's life-giving. Uh, and uh, for 5 o'clock tonight, we'll see you at East. Tomorrow, Sunday, uh, tomorrow, Monday, 7 p.m., we'll see you at East. Amazing. <laughs>